views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The insult to injury that he destroyed her body and we couldn't even give her a kiss goodbye. Now that is just terrible. Intersections, the point at which two or more paths meet. You always have to be careful, not only literally, say at a four-way stop sign while driving or while you're crossing the street, but figuratively as well. The convergence of people's lives, meaning when and why we meet certain individuals, is also a curious thing. Some wholeheartedly believe that there's meaning behind all of this. Others would chalk those chance encounters up to mere coincidence. But if everything does happen for a reason, if people do truly come into our lives for a purpose, well then, by that logic, you can't exclude the negative. You can't just say nothing happens by chance and neglect the sad, tragic, and the horrible. That line of thinking would be, frankly, irresponsible. C'est la vie, as they say, or such is life. But to whichever side of this romantic argument you sway, it's amazing to think that a split second could literally alter the course of your entire day, or in more extreme cases, the rest of your life. Here we beg the question, can and do some people come into our lives for the wrong reasons? Not for the better, but for the absolute worst. And can these interactions be avoided? Or is there some predestined plan the universe has laid out for us one which we're simply unable to disrupt or avoid. After hearing what happened back in 2009, your perspective on the subject may change, or at the very least, it'll make you stop and think, and it may just have you second-guessing every person you end up meeting for the first time moving forward. Portland, Maine, a quaint seaside city on the East Coast, one of the most authentic and picturesque New England experiences out there. The cobblestone streets that pass by 19th century brick buildings, leading to the wharf and fishing piers, truly are what postcards are made of. Beautiful sights to see if you ever get the chance. That fact eerily contributes to the dichotomy of this story. Roughly 45 minutes north of Portland is a town called Wales. This is where a young man by the name of Chad Gurney grew up. Chad attended Oak Hill High and was a pretty normal guy by all accounts. He played sports and was relatively well-liked. He was a fair student, but did well enough to move on to higher education. After high school, Chad went on to play for the lacrosse team as a goalie for Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was charming, good-looking, and somewhat of a ladies' man, if you will. Things were going well for Chad 
until March of 2005 when he was involved in a horrible accident. On the way to a match in Pritchard, Alabama, two 15-passenger vans transporting Chad and his teammates were traveling in succession on the freeway, one in front of the other. Suddenly, the van in back of Chad's accidentally rear-ended theirs, sending the vehicle straight into oncoming traffic at a high rate of speed. Before they could regain control of the van, they were T-boned by a tractor-trailer truck, which sent the vehicle tumbling several times until it rolled over past the guardrail by the tree line. Several students, including the head coach, were severely injured. 23-year-old Chad Gurney was among the four who were rushed to the hospital and were subsequently listed in critical condition. Somehow, all aboard both vans, in addition to the truck driver, all miraculously survived the accident. But Chad had notably sustained the worst of the crash. He had injuries to both arms, back, and nearly lost his leg. His limbs were literally being held together with pins. He had undergone upwards of 20 surgeries and also suffered permanent brain damage as a result. While being treated, Gurney was eventually diagnosed with severe cognitive defects by a physician. Those defects included issues regarding attention span, language, mathematics, and general learning capabilities. It was clear this would be a hindrance that would affect Chad for the rest of his life. Upon his release from a lengthy stay in the hospital, friends began noticing a distinct change in Chad, claiming that he was never quite the same after the accident. Following the horrific accident, Chad moved back to Maine and got a place in the heart of Portland. A lawsuit was then filed after the crash, and Chad and others who were seriously injured were awarded a large sum of money from the college. The exact number is unknown, yet it has been reported that Chad himself received a payout somewhere in the seven-figure range. He was certainly still recovering, but he wasn't going to lose his limbs, and he would walk again. And now... He was wealthy. Chad was prescribed a laundry list of prescription pills to help manage his pain. His sudden wealth seemed to have contributed to his newly developed arrogant attitude as well. Chad was always a confident young man, but now his ego, for whatever reason, appeared to skyrocket through the roof. Friends noticed that he began talking down to people more as time went on, particularly women. He didn't have a care in the world. He'd frequent the bars and go to restaurants on the waterfront, as well as spending thousands of dollars on new tattoos. Money was no longer an object for Chad. He was a fan of metal and hardcore music and was famous for going to shows and, quote, hate-moshing, which is the act of deliberately headhunting, hurting, knocking over, or swinging fist and kicking into other showgoers for the sake of violence. Moshing comes with the territory at these shows, but along with that came certain standards and etiquette. For instance, helping someone when they're down. Contrary to popular belief, this is commonplace in hardcore music. Most bands are actually straight edge, meaning they don't do drugs or even drink alcohol. Chad Gurney was not one of those guys. He seemed to be more interested in having an excuse for hurting others than releasing aggression appropriately. When he wasn't being so wild, however... Chad could be found at the local record store, Bull Moose, purchasing music or playing Dungeons & Dragons in his apartment. Chad didn't have a job, though he clearly needed one, though his landlord never had a problem with him 
as long as the rent check came in on time. In 2007, Gurney decided to seek treatment for his anxiety and depression. He was still suffering from ongoing residual effects as a result of the accident that took place a few years before. He was ultimately diagnosed with organic personality disorder. By definition, this disorder is characterized by the continuous alteration of one's known or usual behaviors and is generally triggered as a result of another medical condition. Symptoms also include abrupt changes to one's emotional stability, creating a lack of better judgment and, in some cases, impulsiveness. The diagnosis seemed to fit Chad Gurney's conduct and mannerisms to a T. Eventually tired from all the drugs he had been given, and effectively weaned himself off all prescription pills as he continued to heal from his injuries. He eventually turned to marijuana instead, certainly a safer and less addictive alternative, no argument there. The year was 2009, which also happened to be the same year a young woman by the name of Zoe Sarnacki was dropping out of Deering High School in Portland, about an eight-minute drive from Chad's apartment. Zoe had just turned 18 and school just wasn't for her. Though she was only months away from graduating, she was a free spirit and wanted to concentrate on other things, like exploring, traveling, and creating art. She eventually got a job at a local bagel shop in the city and was starting to make it out on her own. But Portland isn't the biggest city on earth, so when she met Chad Gurney for the first time at a tattoo shop in the historic district of Old Port, Things seemed normal enough. Chad had gotten a fair amount of work done, including a traditional-style portrait of Jesus Christ atop his hand, with a scripture that read, Nana, commemorating his late grandmother. He also had the word pain tattooed across his knuckles. He told friends he chose this four-letter word because he felt it was the only thing in life he could truly identify with at the time, and that pain was life's only constant. Zoe soon became enamored by the older man's dreary aesthetic, stretched earring gauges, and rebellious attitude. Both frequented the tattoo shop relatively often and eventually got to know one another. Chad was 27 years old at this point, and Watson Atkinson, owner of a different tattoo shop nearby, started to notice that Gurney's interest focused mainly on young girls. It seemed whenever he was in his shop... Chad gravitated toward the women that looked the youngest, and he soon began flirting with them in questionable and inappropriate ways. It became so unsettling at one point that Atkinson warned his 16-year-old daughter to stay away from Chad whenever he came around. That same warning was given to Zoe Sarnacki. Atkinson's daughter obliged. Zoe Sarnacki, unfortunately, however, did not. Zoe was young, but she was very intelligent. People would warn her about Chad, but she could take care of herself. She was a strong, independent young woman, and she actually felt a genuine connection with Chad. He was affectionate and would often buy her gifts, and soon the two began spending more and more time together. They actually had a lot in common, sharing similar beliefs in spirituality, free thinking, and general worldviews. While Chad was incredibly sweet and kind, his attitude could switch at a moment's notice. There were times he would snap, not only at Zoe, 
but at his friends as well. Chad became difficult for a lot of his peers to be around, to the point where his very arrival became a dreaded event at local house parties and bars around Portland. Even Chad's best friend, Corey Bryant, started to worry about his mental health, particularly after one conversation when Gurney confessed that he felt, quote, godlike, and that he believed he was a prophet. Corey was concerned but inevitably wrote this off as another one of Chad's arrogant rants that sometimes naturally exuded from him whenever he was drinking. No one could pinpoint if the money was changing him. Whatever it was, his friends slowly started to distance themselves from Chad. He started boasting about how he wanted to use his money for good and to change the world. He said he was going to travel and, quote, make a difference. Zoe and Chad were never exclusively dating. This was clear from the beginning, as Chad liked to keep his options open. Zoe was aware of this, but it worked for them, for a while anyway. She wasn't looking for anything serious either. Chad was seeing another woman by the name of Amber Wallace during this period as well. Amber found the age difference a bit odd, however, when she learned that Chad had been hanging out with an 18-year-old. Nevertheless, Things carried on this way for a couple of months and everything seemed fine, until May of that year. Chad Gurney was returning home from a solo trip he had taken to Canada. He was starting to move forward with his plans to travel the world. He hadn't been home long and was already gathering his things once again, but this time for an expedition to Thailand. His flights were already booked and he was set to leave in just two days. On the afternoon of May 25th, 2009, Chad Gurney had sent several text messages, not to Zoe Sarnacki, but to Amber Wallace. He asked Amber if she wanted to come over after she got off of work. Amber hadn't thought much of the invitation at the time, but ultimately agreed and told Chad that she'd be by around 9pm after her shift ended. Little did she know that while Chad was texting her, he was also texting Zoe. Zoe also got an invitation and by chance, she happened to accept it as well. She arrived at Chad's much earlier in the day, and once she got there, the two began engaging in small talk, discussing Gurney's week-long trip alone in Canada. He bragged as usual about all the cool things he had done, and even went off on a tangent about his plans for Thailand. He had asked Zoe to come on these trips with him previously, but she had declined each proposal. Zoe then confessed that the reason for her visit was more involved than just wanting to hang out at his apartment. She had something to tell Chad. She explained that she wanted to be honest and communicate with him, revealing that while he had been away in Canada, she had been intimate with another man. How do you solve a crime in reverse? when you believe that someone was murdered, but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Zoe expressed her apologies for any pain her actions may have caused and explained that she still cared for Chad very much and hoped that the sexual encounter would not affect their friendship or current open romantic relationship. Chad didn't respond or react much at all 
Instead, he became quiet and despondent. Zoe was presumably under the impression that Chad understood or that he was processing the relatively heavy information in his own way. After hanging out for a while, Zoe asked if she could lay down to take a nap in Chad's bed as she was quite tired from a long day. Chad nodded and Zoe climbed the ladder up into his loft bedroom where she would eventually fall asleep. All the while, rage was quietly consuming Gurney, internally. He began having thoughts of other women who he had felt had wronged him and mistreated him in the past. He paced around the apartment until eventually something came over him. He climbed the ladder from down below, up into his bedroom loft where Zoe was sleeping. Barely making a sound and with a blank expression, he reached out, grabbed Zoe's neck and headbutted her in an attempt to render her unconscious. He then began to strangle her. She awoke from her sleep suddenly, only to begin reactionarily fighting for her life, gasping desperately for air. Gurney didn't make a sound and robotically continued to squeeze the helpless young woman's throat. During the struggle, he eventually maneuvered Zoe into a chokehold position and after roughly five minutes, he let go. Chad examined her now motionless body and concluded that Zoe was in fact dead. He then climbed down the ladder, sat on the couch, and stared blankly forward. He paced around his apartment a bit more but never seemed to be in any sort of panic as the person he'd been dating for the last two and a half months now lay deceased in his bed. But what Chad Gurney would decide to do next is beneath contempt and utterly terrifying. He climbed back into his loft and proceeded to commit a sex act with his victim's corpse. Once finished, he went back into the kitchen, grabbed a small knife from a butcher block, carefully climbed back up the ladder, and began gruesomely sawing away at Zoe Sarnacki's neck. After one blade broke, he'd head down to grab another, using a total of three knives before successfully removing her head from her body. Gurney then took a shower, got dressed, and began the short walk from his apartment at 463 Cumberland Avenue to a nearby gas station. Here he would fill a red canister with approximately $2.50 worth of gasoline. He then returned home and proceeded to place various religious objects, including several crucifixes that had previously decorated his apartment, on and around Zoe's body. He seemed to be performing some kind of sacrificial ritual with her head laying in the center of the mattress. Gurney then grabbed his already packed bag for Thailand, as well as other items that included his laptop, iPod, passport, Blackberry cell phone, and a shotgun that was resting by the door. Before exiting the apartment, Gurney climbed up the loft ladder one last time, dumped gasoline on Zoe's body, and then left a trail of flammable liquid from his bedroom to the exit door. He then struck and threw a lit match, setting his apartment ablaze. Gurney then promptly left the building with his belongings, got into his car, and began driving south toward Old Orchard Beach, some 20 minutes away on Maine's coastline. Just after 9 p.m. that evening, on-again, off-again girlfriend Amber Wallace showed up to Chad's apartment, only to be met with the chaotic scene of yellow caution tape and smoke billowing from the third-story window. Firefighters were battling to extinguish the burning building. Meanwhile, Chad Gurney was 19 miles away from the scene of the crime and had already stopped at a nearby ATM and paid cash for two nights at the Crest Motel in Old Orchard Beach, room 107. 
Gurney settled into his new hideout, but not before asking the desk clerk for recommendations for a place to grab a bite to eat. After finally making entry into apartment 8 back in Portland, authorities found the charred remains of Zoe Sarnacki, and police quickly learned that the unit had been rented to a Chad Gurney, the sole occupant on the lease. Authorities acted fast and quickly obtained the address of Gurney's best friend, Corey Bryant. At around 1 a.m. early the following morning, detectives Scott Dunham and Lisa Sweat paid Corey a visit, attempting to gain any information they could regarding the potential whereabouts of their one and only suspect. Bryant told detectives that Gurney had plans to take off for Thailand the following day and that he had tried to contact him hours before, but that his calls went straight to voicemail. It would only be one hour later, after authorities left Corey Bryant's home, that he would be pulled over for driving erratically after ultimately running a stop sign. During the routine traffic stop, Bryant seemed flustered and was actively on the phone speaking with someone as the officer approached his driver's side window. When he asked who he was on the phone with, Bryant replied by stating something to the effect of, It's Chad, Chad Gurney. Gurney had called his friend and confessed everything. He told Corey something to the effect of, She did something that hurt me and I lost it. Nervous of being far too close to the situation, Bryant anxiously took a drive as he spoke to Chad to clear his head, trying to make sense of it all. Once pulled over and after realizing that he was continuing on, Officer Jason King of the Portland Police Department asked Bryant to hand over the phone well aware that their murder suspect was now on the other line. Bryant complied and shockingly, Chad Gurney confessed to everything. He gave his current location to the officer then and there on the spot. He told him what motel he was at and which room he was staying in. He continued by stating that he wished to now turn himself in. Officer King told Gurney that someone would be there to visit him soon and for him to remain where he was. It wasn't until roughly two hours later, however, when detectives Rybick and Vogel of the Portland PD arrived at the Crest Motel at approximately four o'clock in the morning. Gurney came out of his room with his hands held high in the air and surrendered without further incident. Chad Gurney offered up a full confession during an interview conducted at the Portland Police Department the morning of his arrest. He told Detective Dunham the details of the murder in its entirety, along with the abuse of a human corpse, arson, and subsequent fleeing of the scene. When asked why he decapitated his victim, Gurney replied by stating that he had no specific reason for doing so. Even though he'd committed such a gruesome act less than 24 hours before, He didn't seem to be suffering from any sort of delusions or mental health crisis at the time of his arrest, nor during the course of this interview. Gurney would go on to state the following, indicating that he was well aware of his actions and the gravity of his involvement. Somehow, this beautiful girl came into my life and swept me off my feet, and I did the most horrific deeds anybody could possibly do. The last couple of days, she had been at my heels. I misread it. I got arrogant rather than loving and nurturing. I had such a problem with women. This is how it finally came out. You don't kill people. I knew it was wrong. 
This statement would be critical for the prosecution when arguing whether or not Gurney was criminally responsible for his actions. An insanity defense would indeed be the foundation on which Gurney's legal team built their case, as there never was a question whether or not this man committed the heinous acts which he was being charged with. Neither side would dispute this, as he'd laid out the facts vividly and at length to detectives within minutes of their first interview. But was Chad Gurney insane? He ultimately waived his right to a jury trial, and it would be up to Justice Roland Cole to make that decision after hearing arguments from the state and Gurney's lawyers. While Chad Gurney was procedurally meeting with mental health professionals to see if he was fit to stand trial, Zoe Sarnacki's loved ones were only beginning to come to grips with the void they'd been left with, a pain no family should ever be forced to endure. After only two and a half months of crossing paths and engaging with 27-year-old Chad Gurney, Zoe Sarnacki was plucked from this earth in the most horrific and violent of ways imaginable. Her adult life had barely begun, and as a result of one man's selfish actions, all of her future hopes and dreams could never be realized. The media was already beginning to jump to conclusions almost as soon as this tragedy occurred. Headlines were haphazardly published, relying upon false information of samurai swords which were allegedly used in the Portland, Maine decapitation. The rumor mill ran rampant as local media outlets more concerned with breaking a story seemingly abandoned the truth in their quest to be the first to cover the case. Among this lapse of decency and consideration for the victim's family, Zoe's sister Kristen decided to speak out and set the record straight once and for all. She told local station WGME-TV the complete and grisly details of exactly what Gurney had done to her baby sister. She wanted the world to know the truth of the monstrous acts that took place on May 25, 2009. Months before his eventual trial, Gurney's lawyers filed a motion to suppress certain pieces of evidence in this case. Those items included digital findings from Facebook, the iPod, Gurney's laptop, and his BlackBerry phone. At the time of his arrest, Gurney had surrendered these items willingly, and a warrant had been successfully granted by a judge three days after the murder, granting police permission to search and investigate the contents of each device. Forensic specialist Detective Eli Chase was appointed to the task of data recovery, and what he unearthed would eventually cripple the defense hence why they had filed the motion to suppress evidence in the first place. In the end, the motion was only partially denied, excluding just two of the four items in question. The most groundbreaking, however, would be permitted into evidence. We'll reveal just exactly what those items were and why they were so important momentarily. Gurney was eventually deemed fit to appear in court, and proceedings would finally begin roughly two years later on January 10th 2011. Was he insane at the time of the crime? That's the question a judge will decide in the Chad Gurney murder trial, the man accused of killing his girlfriend more than a year and a half ago. Prosecutors say 29-year-old Gurney knew what he was doing when he strangled his 18-year-old girlfriend, Zoe Sarnacki, cut her head off, and then set her body on fire. 
Gurney has waived his right for a jury trial, and that means a judge will decide his fate. Chad Gurney was severely injured in a van crash when he was in college five years ago out of state. Now, he's lived with chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorder ever since that crash, according to his lawyers. And the lawyers say that will play a key role in determining whether he's criminally responsible for the murder of Zoe Sarnacki. During their opening statements, the defense team would harp on the van crash as a primary contributor to Gurney's deteriorated mental health. His attorneys brought up his past diagnosis of organic personality disorder, claiming this to be substantial proof that he did not fully understand the weight of his actions that night. They continued by stating that he was suffering from delusions at the time of the murder. They insisted that Gurney believed Zoe was a, quote, celestial being and that she hated life on this plane of the universe. They went on to state that Gurney believed he was actually doing Zoe a favor, sending her off to a more peaceful realm by killing her. Delusions in spirituality became some of the major talking points for his defense. The evidence will show you that Mr. Gurney suffered from a delusional belief that there were signs and tests all around him directing him to act. The state would quickly shut down this claim, however, as Prosecutor Donald McCumber presented evidence that Gurney himself confessed to a psychiatrist a month after the murder that he was in fact not insane and that he had not been hearing voices at the time of the murder because he apparently wanted to do the right thing and tell the truth. He specifically rejected the concept that his mental state at the time of the allegations should be considered at all. He said, and I quote, I don't want to cower away at Riverview. I need to own this. Not legally responsible are the most cowardly words. End quote. This verbatim admission of guilt didn't exactly help his insanity defense. However, attorney Sarah Churchill would respond by contesting that these conflicting statements were clearly from a man of unsound mental health. But what really broke this case? according to forensic specialist Eli Chase, were the digital footprints Chad Gurney left behind, the very evidence that his defense team tried so desperately to omit. It turns out there were multiple Facebook messages sent by Gurney to friends immediately following the murder, in which he confessed to what he had done. With respect to these messages, along with the iPod, they were never allowed into evidence, as requested by his attorneys. But that didn't seem to matter much, because the laptop and cell phone were. During Detective Chase's data recovery, he discovered not a video file, but a cache and file name of a video that had been deleted from Gurney's MacBook. The video's encrypted hyperlink was directed to a gore site. The title of said video was, quote, Woman Half Beheaded for Suspected Cheating. The video's information and description section read, well, at least if she was cheating, she won't do it again. It was eventually revealed that the keyword beheading had been definitively typed into Gurney's web browser some 71 times. The phone call and confession to Corey Bryant was brought up when Gurney's former best friend also testified for the state. The addition of this witness clearly indicated Gurney's ability to differentiate between right and wrong at the time he committed the murder. Finally, Gurney's ex-girlfriend and the woman who came so dangerously close to potentially meeting the same fate as Zoe Sarnacki, Amber Wallace, also testified in court. 
She stated that out of all the years of knowing Gurney, platonically and romantically, not once had she seen any indication of him suffering from any sort of delusions, voices, or otherwise. Chad Gurney has pleaded not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. If the judge finds him guilty today, he faces 25 years to life in prison, or he could be committed to the state psychiatric hospital. Gurney is charged with a murder and arson in the killing of his girlfriend Zoe Sarnacki back in May of 2009. Prosecutors say Gurney strangled the 18-year-old, cut off her head, and set her body on fire. And a judgment would be reached on this day, February 4th, 2011. He reacted by choking her, headbutting her, putting her in a chokehold until she died. The facts in this case strongly suggest that this was a domestic violence homicide. The defendant's actions after the homicide are consistent with an attempt to cover up or destroy the evidence of the homicide. The final judgment of this court is Chad Gurney is guilty of the intentional and knowingly causing the death of Zoe Sanaki, and he is also guilty of acid. Thus, he is guilty of murder and acid, as set forth in the indictment. Upon leaving the courthouse, one of Gurney's defense lawyers, Robert Labrasser, gave this statement to the media, which perhaps may have been more constructive had he not mispronounced the victim's last name, only adding insult to injury. This is just a horrible case all around. Uh, Chad has apologized to them before, and again, he sends his condolences to the Zarnacki family for their loss. Before Chad Gurney's eventual sentencing one month later in March, he was given a chance to address the court aloud, including Zoe's mother and father, who were also in attendance. I can still live hope and dream, and Zoe can no longer do any of these things, and that's unfair. I would give anything to replace this with her, and it's to her soul I beg forgiveness for the horror and endured by my hand. Again, to John and Linda in the city of Portland, I'm sorry I never meant for any of this. Before rendering his final ruling, Judge Roland Cole would offer these parting words. He's still, in my view, a troubled young man and a dangerous young man. If he was to be released in the community now, I would have a very little confidence that the community would not be at risk from Chad Gurney. And with that, Chad Gurney was handed down a 50-year prison sentence for first-degree murder. He received an additional 10 years for arson. The immediate question that arises after hearing this is how did this man not receive the maximum allowable sentence? First, it's important to know that Maine is not a death penalty state, so capital punishment was never on the table in this case. Yet, with a crime so vicious and gruesome in nature, one would assume Chad Gurney would be locked away for the rest of his life without the possibility of parole, considering he was found criminally responsible for his actions. The judge concluded, however, that these crimes did not contain aggravating factors that must be present in order to impose a mandatory life sentence. But how in the hell is that even possible, you might be asking? Well, in the eyes of Maine state law, there must be at least one of the several factors present to lock someone away forever. Torture, premeditation, sexual abuse, and extreme cruelty are only a few on the list. The court ultimately decided that because Zoe Sarnacki was already deceased, 
when Chad Gurney decapitated her, sexually defiled her body, and lit her on fire, that a life sentence could not be imposed. After justice had questionably been served in this case, Zoe's Aunt Kathy spoke on behalf of the Sarnacki family to the media, expressing that while they are at ease knowing Gurney is off the streets and on his way to prison, regardless of the sentence, nothing could replace the absence of their beloved Zoe, and not being able to properly say goodbye has made things for the family just that much worse. You saw Linda. I mean, Linda, you know, she's lost her daughter, John Sarnacki. They lost their daughter in such a horrifying way. And he never even left us a body to say goodbye to. That will always haunt me. No kiss goodbye. Gurney would go on to file an appeal to the Maine Supreme Judicial Court on January 10, 2012. On February 7th of that same year, the reporter of decisions returned their resolution. The final paragraph in the court's ruling of said appeal stated the following. We do not need to reiterate here the evidence upon which the court based its judgment. There was more than sufficient evidence from which the court could reasonably conclude that Gurney was criminally responsible for his conduct. Based on this record, the court was not compelled to conclude otherwise. The entry is judgment affirmed. The Sarnacki family would end up filing a civil suit against Gurney for the wrongful death of their loved one, Zoe. As a result, they were allegedly awarded somewhere in the ballpark of $1.3 million, the estimated remainder of what Chad Gurney had received from the van accident back in 2005. As a youth, Zoe was a student at Presumpscott Elementary, after her death, a memorial plaque was put up accompanied by a new park bench on school grounds. As the years passed, the memorial became faded and scratched, and in 2009, it was replaced with a new one that read, quote, In memory of Zoe Sarnacki, once a student at Presumpscott School, taken too soon but not forgotten. If you pause a while to sit upon this bench, take the time to count your blessings. A gift from Girl Scout Troop 2051 and Samantha Allshouse and Kayla Theriault. We always try our best here at Invisible Choir to gear these episodes toward the victim, with their story in mind first, and as an outlet for their voice. We wanted to bring Zoe's story to the forefront. We hoped to learn who she was, what she wanted to do in life, and more about the vibrant personality the few remaining news articles online have articulated. Sadly, there simply aren't that many of them. We reached out to several of Zoe's family members and friends. Most of our messages were seen but never responded to. The few we did hear back from respectfully declined to be interviewed. When approaching those who were affected so greatly by a tragedy and have lost someone in such a malicious manner, it's understandable why many would choose not to speak. Some things are just far too traumatic to willingly relive. Our goal is always to respect those lost and we'll continue to do our best preserving the names of these individuals to the best of our ability. Unfortunately, in the case of Zoe Sarnacki, we're not left with much more than her obituary as an insight into her personal life. With that being said, we felt we owed it to her and our listeners to, at the very least, share those commemorative words here written by her family. 
in hopes of providing even the slightest sense of who this young woman was and all that she stood to become. Zoe Sarnacki lost her life on May 25, 2009, at the age of 18. She attended Portland schools and was most recently working at Bagel Works in the Old Port. Zoe loved animals, the arts, and her large circle of friends and family. She leaves behind her parents, John and Linda Sarnacki, paternal grandparents, Frank and Marietta Sarnacki of West Virginia, her sisters, Courtney Sarnacki, Kristen and Messina Kosnow, a brother, Gregory Sarnacki, and his wife, Christy, and their daughter, Chloe. Also, nephew Jake Kosnow and a niece, Shaylee Penny, as well as many aunts and uncles, including her special aunts, Kathy Kosnow and Martha Holmes. She also leaves behind her five beloved cats, as well as a wonderful circle of friends she held dear. Zoe's sister Kristen was one of the family members we had originally reached out to, the sister who stood up for Zoe after her passing using her own voice to express the despicable nature of those crimes. It wasn't until after we tried to contact her that we'd learned our messages were arriving to an email address in limbo and that Kristen had tragically passed away on October 12, 2020, after battling addiction for over 20 years. She was just 41 years old. Moments like this can only give one pause, provoking a moment of self-reflection, a reminder of just how fleeting life can be. The amount of turmoil the Sarnacki family has gone through, and undoubtedly is still going through, for more than the last decade, is incomprehensible. We'll continue to keep them in our thoughts and prayers. A couple of individuals who were interested in speaking with us go by the names of Jessica Jurgen, also known as Yurgi, and Drew Dickinson from the Misery Machine podcast. We came across their work during our research for this episode. As fellow true crime content creators, we were excited to get their perspective on this case in particular because they actually had a connection to Chad Gurney. We try to understand these crimes from all angles. Sometimes that means speaking with individuals who knew the perpetrators. We do so not to glorify the killer or say their name more than they deserve, but to dissect and understand where things may have ultimately gone wrong. To try and learn from what may have led an individual down a path to such brutality and violence. With that being said, these two New Englanders not only grew up in the Portland area, but they also happened to personally know convicted murderer Chad Gurney fairly well. So I met Chad when I was about 15 or 16 years old at the Litchfield Fair, which was, it's a small town fair near Lewiston, Auburn. So Chad grew up in Wales and the school district there is uh, Litchfield, Wales and Savannah. So it's just this little country fair there. And I noticed him like, who's that guy? And I was there with my cousin and she, she told me that's Chad Gurney. Stay away from him. He is not good. So kind of knew who he was. And it wasn't till a couple years later that I actually had my first like face-to-face interactions with him. He started working at a record store in town called Bull Moose. We actually have a chain of them throughout Maine. And it's kind of a place to hang out. There wasn't a lot of places to hang out in Lewiston, Auburn. So all like you know, the metal people or the punks or whatever would hang out in Bull Moose all of the time. And from there, he started messaging me on AOL Instant Messenger. He had gotten my name from a mutual friend. So that's kind of how it started. Chad Gurney was 17 or 18 years old when he first met 15-year-old Jessica Jurgen. After finding out her screen name on AOL Messenger, they would quickly form an online relationship that eventually evolved into hanging out in the real world 
and not just in online chat rooms. We wanted to get Jessica's perspective on the warnings that almost all young women had received in the Portland area as it pertained to Chad Gurney. Like Zoe, Jessica was aware of these warnings, but she admits they had a very different relationship as she and Chad were never romantically involved. My take was is very different. It's very different from a lot of women's takes. He And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were not in any sort of intimate partner relationship. We were just simply friends. So he was always very polite to me. Yeah, he was a little, little arrogant. Back then, he was very good looking. He knew he was very good looking. And he always had like a flock of women after him. He was very much into the local music scene. Um, he was very into the tattoo scene. He won many different awards for some of his work. Um, he was covered basically from the neck down. But I mean, as far as it, it went for me, I, I never had any problems with him. I was alone with him many times. I remember one time we, when I was probably about 18 or 19, we just hung out after he got out of work. At this point, he was working at some sort of factory in Lisbon. And at the factory, he was doing something with making like pressed particle board type stuff. And he'd get out at like two or three in the morning. I remember one time we just hung out in a cemetery and listened to the cure and smoked cigarettes for a couple hours and totally safe. While Jessica says she had a positive relationship with Chad, she acknowledges this was a rare case in regards to his unusually bad treatment towards women. She goes on to explain other instances, warning signs of past relationships that she was aware of. These relationships may have been an indicator that this man might one day do something terrible, or at the very least, reveal that he did have a strange infatuation with wanting to choke his victims. But like, this is not the first time he was like allegedly abusive to his girlfriends. He uh, supposedly had some sort of picture on his wall of a man choking a woman. And there was like a post-it note or someone wrote his name with an arrow pointing to the guy and then some sort of post-it note or just simply written on the picture with Arrow with his current girlfriend at the time's name on it. There was another woman, I can't find any of the information online anymore, that had been dating him prior to this. It, it said something to the, like, the fact that he was very emotionally and verbally abusive and would try to make her stay in the house all of the time. It starts to become even more clear here that Chad Gurney may have almost always felt a sense of entitlement over his romantic partners a skewed perception of a deserved sense of control. While Jessica avoided the potential harm that came along with dating someone like Chad Gurney and admits she never saw any abuse herself firsthand, Drew, on the other hand, has. He tells us about the outbursts of rage he'd seen time and time again, though they weren't appreciated and flew largely under the radar. Chad Gurney was written off as just another asshole hate-moshing at the local hardcore shows. Chad was a regular in the hardcore scene in Maine. He was there a lot. And I remember when somebody told me, that guy right there, do not leave him alone with any women. And I didn't know why they said that at the time until I saw how he was in the pit. And in hardcore dancing, some of the kids use this as an excuse to hit people on the edge of the pit. They'll spin kick them, they'll throw punches or whatever. I've watched him kick women in the face. You know, I, I've watched him punch women. And it was, it, it's crazy to think about how people got away with that 15 years ago. But because you were doing it in that setting, there was this plausible deniability, even though everybody knew what you were doing. And it was just accepted. And 
he was constantly getting into fights. He was constantly like getting aggressive with people and he was just dangerous. And I never, I never heard a good word about him. And every time I saw him at a show, he was violent as all hell. He would constantly be seen crossing the thin line between getting his aggression out and seriously injuring both men and women in the process. But no one ever said anything. He was well-liked in the scene and was welcomed by nearly all cliques within this niche community at the time. In a sense, he was also protected. More than likely, Chad Gurney felt as though he could do as he pleased. After all, according to what best friend Corey Bryant recalled, Chad Gurney thought he was a god, a prophet to be exact. But the only thing that may have been prophesied here was more brutality that would only escalate over time, eventually resulting in a young woman's tragic murder many years later. It's important to reiterate here that these particular music scenes are actually quite progressive and harmless 99% of the time, with most bands promoting positive messages within their lyrics. As a manipulator, though, Chad just happened to take advantage of an environment that would facilitate and overlook his savage aggression. Having both known this man personally, we wanted to get Jessica and Drew's opinions as to whether they thought Gurney's mental health, particularly relating to the bus accident, played any role in this murder, or if they believed this man was simply just another narcissist who went to the extreme when he felt he was finally losing control treating women like objects who he confusingly believed he somehow owned. In my opinion, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to say. Before I knew about the accident, I just assumed he was an evil person. I, I follow a lot of contact sports, mixed martial arts, and things like that, pro, pro wrestling growing up. So seeing all these people I used to watch um, with CTE, and I've had family members who have served that have had TBIs. I've seen what it's done to those people. And so I, I am sympathetic about what this could do to somebody. Um, if forced to give an opinion, I would think that he was probably not a great person initially. And had this accident not happened, maybe he wouldn't have killed her. Maybe. I think he probably would have been just going through more acceptable channels of abuse, let's put it that way. Being emotionally abusive, maybe physically abusive inside of relationships, but not going as far as murder, especially to the degree which he committed the murder. Like, and I, I think that's probably the more shocking thing. And when I hear the details about that murder, that gives me the hunch that, hey, maybe there was a brain injury involved. I didn't realize this until much, much later after, you know, he killed somebody and people started to come forward, but he would go to people to complain about his girlfriends. Back when I had first met him, he was complaining to me about his girlfriend at the time saying she's cheating, she's being abusive, and he'll make the partner out to look like the abusive one when really he's the one who's doing it. I have the feeling that this would have happened possibly anyway, due to the fact that he was abusive to women. He was a master manipulator, very charming, and every relationship he had went completely off the rails. The accident, after he had all the brain damage and was in constant pain all the time, just kind of sent him right over the edge. I don't think that he was insane per se, 
but I think that the injuries contributed to maybe a temporary moment of insanity. Both Jessica and Drew share introspective and compassionate theories, looking at this case objectively, something we most certainly can appreciate. But after speaking with them a bit more, it became evident rather quickly that Jessica may have felt a bit more conflicted than Drew when coming to a conclusion. To our surprise, we eventually learned that Jessica had actually reached out to Chad and written to him while in prison after committing the murder. We wanted to know why, and she ultimately obliged our request. But we'll let Jessica tell you that story for herself. So we corresponded back and forth just in letters for years. It just, you know, talking about how our day was, just benign things, like nothing even really closely related to the murder. And in 2012, my grandmother uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And Chad was one of the few people that actually was there for me during that time. He would call like quite often, call my cell phone and would just like talk to me while I was dealing with that. You have to remember here that Chad Gurney is in fact a master manipulator, even from behind bars. He seemed to have been latching on to Jessica, taking advantage of one of the few people he had left in his life. But it didn't stop there. After years of coercion and convincing, Chad eventually got Jessica to agree to come visit him in prison. And so she took the one hour and 25 minute drive from her home to the main state penitentiary. He had thrown the idea of going to visit around a few times and I wasn't totally comfortable with it because one, the prison warrants a pretty far drive. And two, like, it just, I hadn't seen him in like so many years and knowing what he did, it just seemed awkward for me, but I eventually agreed to do it. The prison in Warren, it's not the safest setup for a visit. Everyone is just in one giant open room. There are very few guards in there. You're at tables, nobody is cuffed and you're there for three hours. It's not just a quick, like one hour visit. You're stuck there for three hours with them. So it's weird. Yeah. We just, talked about our days at that point he talked about like the murder a little bit and gave me those like tidbits those tidbits were chad's claims that zoe's mother visits him often in prison and that she has forgiven him for his horrific misdeeds it's important to note here that we have absolutely zero evidence to prove or verify any of gurney's claims here other than to say this information was simply conveyed directly to jessica as she sat across from a killer face-to-face for the first time since the murder. The claims, seemingly completely ridiculous at best, mirror the delusions Chad had apparently exhibited earlier when he claimed that Zoe was a, quote, celestial being who despised her life in the current realm. Where he had previously claimed that he was simply doing Zoe a favor by murdering her, decapitating her, and then setting her body on fire, he is now claiming that Zoe's own mother is also thankful for his, quote, favor, a claim that, frankly, could only be made by a delusional master manipulator. He said that Zoe's mother had forgiven him and that she's in a better place and that she really didn't really like this world that much and that she had visited him in prison and said this. But again, this is just coming from Chad. And he, I could tell he was trying to pretend to be crazy but like I could kind of see through it. He talked about how he would try to like mess with his psychiatrist and do things to make her think that he was insane because he had this grand plan that he was going to somehow win some sort of appeal 
to either get put over at Riverview, Riverview Psychiatric up in Augusta so he'll, he'd eventually be found sane and get out, or he wanted to be transferred to a New York State prison so that he could possibly marry someone to get conjugal visits. Eventually, like I didn't want to visit ever again, and he kind of like pressured me to, and I didn't want to, so eventually we fell out of touch. Jessica never did visit Chad Gurney ever again, and has since ceased all communication with him. It is astounding to hear the examples of how this man is still trying to orchestrate control over situations and relationships to best serve his own agenda, and from all places, from a prison cell. Getting Jessica to take that trip to visit him is just one example of how persuasive this man can be. And in a way, that's one of the most frightening character traits a human being can have, especially when they decide to use that ability to carry out acts of pure evil. Chad Gurney is currently serving out his sentence at the Maine State Prison in Warren, Maine. He will be 89 years old when he is eligible for release. <laughs> 